Talk to you with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Compose Conference will be taking place Thursday, February 4th and Friday, February 5th in New York City. Compose is a conference for typed functional programmers focused specifically on Haskell, OCaml, F-Sharp, SML, and related technologies. To find out more and to register, visit www.composeconference.org. On February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place and registration is now open. Visit lambdadays.org to find out more or to register and to make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win. That's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with Clojure. Visit www.clojured.de to find out more. Elixir Days will be taking place March 4th in St. Augustine, Florida. Elixir Days is a one-day conference with a nearly full day of talks and a helping hack session to close it out. The CFP is open through January 15th, and early bridge registration is open as well. Visit elixirdays.com, that's elixirdaze, Dot com to find out more. Erlang Factory San Francisco will be taking place on the 10th and 11th of March, with training on the 7th through the 9th of March, and the 14th through the 16th of March. Tickets to the conference are available now. Visit www.erlang-factory.com sfbay2016 to register and to find out more. LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 26th through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. The call for proposals is now open and will close on January 15th. Visit lambdaconf.us to keep an eye out for updates. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Normand. Eric, you've been on before, but would you mind giving everyone a little bit of background about yourself for those who didn't catch the previous episode? Sure. My name is Eric. I help programmers become closure professionals. I have a website called lispcast.com where I write articles. I run the Closure Gazette, which is a weekly closure newsletter. And I also run Purely Functional TV where you can learn closure and hopefully soon more functional languages. The previous episode we had you on was episode 18, so if anybody wants to go and listen to that episode as well, that's the episode we're going to be probably referring back to when we talk about, make mention to some of the stuff you've been doing, but since that episode, previously you were doing purelyfunctional.tv as individual videos or video series. You were just getting into core async around that time, and that was coming out, and you were working on that. But in the time since, which has been about a year, was you started making the move to more of a fast feedback, more frequent videos, smaller segments to be able to kind of help address people's real questions instead of making a big video up front and then hoping the feedback 
was receptive. So do you want to kind of go in and elaborate in your opinion as to what you were doing, the driver of that, and how you found some of that feedback coming from the videos that you've been making now? Yeah, sure. When I was last on, I was in the middle of making core async, I think right at the end. And the course was really well received. It was really high quality. I taught what I wanted to teach, uh, but it just took too long. And I'm trying to build this into a real sustainable business. And for the amount of the number of customers I got the, based on the size of the market and everything, people who want to learn closure, it's not that big. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't sustain. I think it took six to nine months to make that course. And I spent, I think it came out in November, and I spent the end of November and December trying to find a better way to make the courses so that they wouldn't take as much time, but would keep the same quality. And I released two more courses in that new format with the new process, but they still took a while. The fastest one took three months to make. And it was still too long. And while I was making the last one, I, I realized that I, I wasn't ever going to be able to make these big courses work that way. The real problem is that while they don't take that many hours to make, it's enough hours that it starts getting spread out in my free time, like over weeks and months. And like, I can't just keep it all in my head all the time. So then there's all this overhead about taking notes where I left off and figuring out where I left off when I start again. And I was talking to some friends about this issue and they started talking about all these subscription services that they either knew about or they, they subscribed to like Ruby Tapas or Elixir Sips. And they were talking about how great they were. And, and so I started reaching out to the people who created those. And they said that they were working well. And so after talking to my friends, I actually ran home and gave it a shot. I was like, how long would it take to make a 10 to 15 minute video that was just on a single small topic, right? 10 to 15 minutes, you don't have a lot of time. So it gets to be really focused. And the first time I did it, it actually took about two hours. And two hours, you know, I have a kid, I have a full-time job. Two hours is like the maximum time that I can find consecutive to be able to work on these things. So I thought I could do this once a week. I could make one of these 10 to 15 minute videos every week. And basically, I started realizing, wow, this is, this is perfect because it's small enough that I can start talking about topics that maybe wouldn't have fit into a bigger course. Because with a bigger course, you have this big goal of, for instance, being able to write a whole web server after a few hours of study, a few hours of practice. And that's a big topic. You don't want to go on a tangent about some detail of the HTTP API or something. So I try to make a beeline and I have to leave all these topics aside. But I could talk about one of those things in a 10 to 15 minute thing. And so all of a sudden it just exploded with all the things I could talk about. 
and teach. So once I wrapped up the last course, I decided to make that change. And it opened up less than two months ago, and it's had a big reception. It's not big enough. I want more customers, but it's a good start. I've been super excited because I feel like I've hit a nerve. People email me saying, oh, I've been wanting something like this. This is great. And so I'm really happy with it. So you started with the short topic and did the the experiment. Because I remember hearing you, I don't know if it was ThoughtBot when you were on it recently or the Ruby Rogues episode, you were on it recently. But part of that was looking for the faster feedback and making sure you're actually addressing people's needs versus coming up with the course. Did you find you got a lot of good reception about the structure of that 10 to 15 minute episode when you put it out there and that you've been able to in the past few months of doing this, that you've been able to quickly fine tune and hone some of the way you've been presenting this and figuring out if you're too niche for this 15 minutes or you're too broad and you need to niche down more on these topics? So that's a really good question. Like I said, I've I've been doing it less than two months now, but I have found that basically, let me give the background. If I was doing a course and it took nine months, no one saw any of the material as it was coming out. At most, I might have talked about where it's at in an email to my email list or something like that. So then when it came out, finally, people would have questions and it was too late. Like I spent all this time putting it together. I can't just like go back and and fill it in. I would answer the question in an email or something, but the course was what it was. But with this, I have been getting questions like, oh, can you talk about this too? Or can you go deeper into this? And that is something that I really cherish because as a teacher, it's hard to know whether what you're saying is making sense without that feedback. So yeah, I've, I've really appreciated that. And so you found this 10 to 15 minute episode is also kind of a sweet spot for you as well as to what kind of topics and comfortability you can get. Because I know there's people who do the longer form, as you've mentioned, then they do a little bit more of the 20 to 30 minutes and you're doing a 10 to 15. And then there's some that do the five minute one. So have you found that the 15 minute is kind of your sweet spot for getting to cover the stuff that you're wanting to cover? Well, not spending too much time and going broad and actually being able to give the appropriate level of detail for this from the teaching perspective? Yeah, so far. I'm a big believer that when you're teaching something, you can always break it down further. And I mean, this is this is going to sound kind of mean, but you can never underestimate the level that you should be teaching at. And it doesn't really mean that like your audience is dumb and they need everything explained to them. But what it means is, as someone who's been doing this for 10 years, it's so easy to forget that, like, this might be new to somebody. And you just have to remind yourself, like, yes, going over this very basic idea is beneficial to somebody. Obviously, not all of my audience is at the same level. And that's a challenge in itself. But those two things, being able to break everything down further, And also being able to talk about these sort of more fundamental and basic building blocks of functional programming 
yeah, I, I, I find that 10 to 15 minutes is perfect. And that's kind of where I was getting at was more of the, as you start breaking it down, as you start exposing the ideas to people who may not have that knowledge base for whatever it is, whether they're purely new to functional programming or just new to closure in and of itself, is saying, okay, I could probably go off in the weeds for a good while just talking about the difference between thinking in a for loop and thinking in an each and building up the map and reduce and everything on top of that and finding that balance of I'm giving you information that's applicable while still having enough time to go down and actually target that versus split that out and to say, look, here's a whole episode of understanding how reduce is built out of an each and getting that stuff and getting away from a for loop or something like that. Because I know you've also done articles about reduce and how you can do a whole bunch of stuff on top of reduce that you might not even think about when you look at the basic pattern because it's just a fold. But then it's like, well, if I don't understand really reduce and how reduce is working going down into the weeds at that level and kind of striking that balance between just digging down deeper for people who don't have that experience and it's brand new to them versus addressing those ideas at a higher level and saying, fine, you have reduce, but here's how you push reduce further to its limits. Yeah. So the thing that that makes me think about is sort of my process. I always find that the first time I teach something, I'm, if, you know, someone asks me a question in a conversation face to face, I just am terrible at it the first time. I stumble and I don't know the best way to explain it. And it's not until like I do one and throw it away that I, I realize that there's something there that I'm trying to get at and I'm just not hitting it. I'm not getting to the meat of it. And that 10 to 15 minutes is backed by maybe another half hour of bad attempts, right? So I just did something uh, over the uh, weekend recording three videos actually map filter and reduce because uh, we can talk about this later but I, I feel like they're the backbone of good functional programming and I did a couple of tries and I was just like I'm just talking about map like why why would someone want to hear this why would someone want to learn this and I went through an intro and I just wound up throwing away all of that and trying to find some like real world hook into an instant understanding of when you would use map. Why is map important? And eventually I found it. And, you know, it, it just requires that kind of exploration. And then once I did it for map, I was like, ah, oh, filter, I can do the same, right? And filter's easy. Reduce was a challenge, right? And I, I wound up like pacing around the house, like talking to myself, what is reduce? Why, why, why is it so hard? How do I make the name Reduce stick? And eventually I found uh, some art that I had done and that my daughter had done. I was like, this is it. It's art. It's a collage. Reduce is, um, well, I'll give it away. So Reduce, the name is terrible because to me it either sounds like you're taking a stock, like a broth, and you're reducing it down to some really thick essence of it because you're boiling all the water away. But that's not really what you're doing in functional programming or you reduce something like you make it smaller and that's not what's happening either it's more like you're assembling 
right? You're taking a bunch of parts and you're combining them with some base. So the example I give in the video is my daughter made some macaroni art. And so you have three parts of a reduce. You have the action, the function you're calling on it, which is glue. You have the initial starting value, which in this case was a piece of cardstock. And then a collection, in this case, it's a collection of macaroni. And she went through one piece of macaroni at a time, calling that action glue onto the initial value. And at the end, she had a piece of macaroni art. And it's things like that that I'm really searching for. Something visual, because it's a video, but also because people can imagine it and any other explanation of reduce is just going to be boring and it's not going to stimulate that real understanding so that you can start using it. The cool thing is, is once you have something like that, you can write it on the, you know, I have a whiteboard, so I write it on the whiteboard in closure syntax. You say, look, reduce, glue, cardboard, macaroni, and it's all there. And now you can start saying, okay, well, what if we wanted to do something in the computer. Well, we're going to sum up some numbers. So it's reduced. The action is plus. The initial value is zero. And you have a collection of numbers. So you can start with something real world that people can relate to. And it's one of those things that I found when I try and write my blogs and at least do stuff for me for understanding is just to flash back to our previous conversation was I asked how you get so many ideas for being pervasive when you have a bunch of articles and blogs. And you said, look at the standard library and you'll have an endless source of things to talk about. Right. And so I started taking and applying that, but I did notice that was one of the things of, well, if I'm trying to understand this for me at the beginning, it was kind of still very much, this is just me trying to understand how this works, but there was no why there was no, why is this useful or why is this important? And as I started going Mm -hmm. on, it's trying to figure out that understanding of the why and why this is valuable. And especially when bringing it to other coworkers and some of these ideas of whatever language it is, of just bringing these functional concepts of why do we want to do some of these operations versus a for loop or why do we want to be able to compose these smaller functions together and in the way that we are able to with functional programming and some of these libraries in JavaScript or Clojure or whatever language it is and figure out what the story is. And that's one of the things as you're talking about is just figuring out what is the motivation? Why, like, why is this valuable? What is the motivation here that makes someone want to pipe up and say, oh, yeah, that, that does seem useful. I get it now. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. For obvious reasons. But I know someone who learned programming in an object-oriented way. And she's actually really good. But the leap to functional is fraught with like a lot of these questions. Like, well, why, why should I just have some data that I'm reducing over, right? Like, it's a huge abstraction leap to go from a well-named object-oriented method, like let's say a class with a bunch of well-named methods on it, and kind of being sure like, okay, I know what this is doing because it's got a good name, to 
abstracting to another level where you're calling reduce with first on a a list of lists that represents something in your domain, right? Like it's a huge leap to go to that next level. And why would you want to do that? The best answer I can give, well, it's actually two answers. And these are the two best ones so far. I don't really have a better answer. But if you just go through the code and you count the number of temporary variables you need or the number of mutations you need, you'll start to see that when you're using for loops or something, like you need a counter variable or you at least need the variable, because some languages have for loops that can operate over a list, right? You at least need that variable that holds the current value. And you're going to have some mutation in there because you need to get the value out of that loop. So you need to have like the initial value is stored somewhere and you're going to be mutating that thing. So if you just count those things and you say, you know, it's not bad in itself, but once they start getting more and more of them, you start to see, wow, this is a, this is a lot of state I'm keeping around and changing you can see a a pattern there that this is only going to grow. And then if you count in a functional program where that same loop might have been just a map or that loop was just a filter or reduce, you notice, wow, I didn't need to have a variable that I initialize. And so if those things are, are bad in any way, then you're reducing them to a minimum. The other answer is that for loops don't compose well, meaning if you're going to compose them, it's kind of like a bespoke loop now. And filter and map and reduce, they compose really well. I mean, you can chain maps together. You can put filters in between. You can have a reduce at the end that, that operates on the result of that whole chain. And you can't really do that with a bunch of mutable state with local variables. And so to say they compose well, I know is, a, is another big leap. Like I've written programs in Clojure that when I talk about it, people are like, well, how did you even do that in like a week in Clojure? And the answer is always because it's composable. Like I didn't have to write that much. Once you get the basic abstraction and data modeling down, it's just composing stuff that already exists. Whereas in an object-oriented, you know, I don't, I don't mean to pick on them, uh, object-oriented languages, but in an object-oriented style, the data modeling takes a long time because you have to make a new class for each little thing, and then you need accessor methods, and now you've made one class, now you have to make another class and another class, and they don't compose well because often we'll have to copy method from one class to another because you want to have the same operation available on that class. Whereas if you had just used a map, the operation would work on both. And so you just have a lot more reuse, a lot more composability of existing stuff, and you can operate more quickly and more safely. And that composability is something that I found and didn't discover I was trying to do until later. And I had read, I believe it was Joel Sposky's, one of his articles about some of the ideas you get from thinking and from learning other languages where you've got 
patterns, but if you're in a more procedural or OO world of a for loop, is that you've got that filter pattern, but you may not recognize it because you're, you've got your for i equals zero to length of array. If item is at i is this thing, then I need to continue or break or whatever. And then you've got your other stuff. And until you start to break out the parts and say, okay, maybe there's just the part of the for loop and I get this is going to suffer performance if this is a long list because we're iterating over this item multiple times in an OO or procedural world. But we'll hit that problem when we hit that problem and not optimize prematurely is now I've got my for loop, which just does the filtering. And then I've got my for loop, which just does some other processing and starting to refactor out the internals of the for loop a little bit cleaner. Then it was once I started looking at SICP and some of these others and actually seeing that there were actual patterns around that behavior that I started to appreciate that composability and say, look, there are patterns here, but you know what? Some of these languages, you can't actually get to take advantage of these patterns because they don't support some of the features that are needed, like lambdas and functions as first-class citizens. Right. And there's also something in some languages, I'm going to pick on it because it's okay to pick on Java. But Java has a lot of good features. But one of the things that happens in Java is abstracting something in Java makes it take more code. And in a good language for abstraction, you would be able to make it take less code. Because once you have an abstraction, if it's a good abstraction, you can reuse it. And in Java, it just makes it so hard. So you mentioned for loop as maybe it's a filter. Like why, you know, why don't we just write filter if, if we're using the same pattern everywhere? Well, if you wanted to do that in Java, you would probably have to make a filter class and then you would need some way of representing the body of that filter, which would be like a lambda, I guess you could do in Java 8, or you could subclass it. Right. And so you need another class every time you call it. So the thing is that the whole language is telling you basically don't do this. It's shorter to just write a for loop. And so you don't ever get to the point where you're abstracting the important stuff. You just write the same for loop over and over. Now, I think that's one of the things that people like about Ruby. I don't know Ruby myself, but I know that doing that kind of what they call metaprogramming is really common. And so, I don't know, I, I would like to learn Ruby one day and see what that's all about. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not object-oriented programming in general. It's the things the language makes easy or hard. And then the tendencies of the community. I think that that's a big part of it too. For instance, what would a programmer in the community say if they saw my filter class? What would they say if I started abstracting stuff that wasn't part of the domain, but it was part of programming itself, right? So I have a post on my site about, there's this classic problem that is given in computer science classes to talk about data modeling. And it's about, you have a school and you have different classes and different students. And so you need a many-to-many -many relationship, basically because each student has multiple classes that they're taking and each class has multiple students. So how do you do it? Like you have this method where 
you're saying like register. So where do you put that method? Does it go on the student? And then the class has to know that you've registered. So you have to call, it has to call a method back on. So you're trying to basically represent this relationship as pointers going back and forth between the class and the student and they have to be set correctly. And I think that that's a proper object-oriented way to model it, but I think it's wrong. Like you shouldn't be worried about your two domain nouns, your class and your student. What you should be worried about is the use case of why do students have to register for classes and stuff? Well, how does it work in the real world? You have a book and the book just has a page for every class and it just lists the students that have registered for the class. And so you look up the class that you want to register for, you write your name in the book, right? I mean, that's how it used to work before computers and stuff. And you're not pointing at stuff or you just have an identifier, your student number, and the class has an identifier. And there's this table where everything is there, right? So it's a purely data-oriented thing. And it always was before people started modeling it incorrectly. And what you're really modeling is a many-to-many relationship. So that book can represent any many-to-many relationships. It's actually an abstraction away from the specific example, the specific domain. It can represent any many-to-many relationship. So my first instinct as a functional programmer in an object-oriented world, I would want to make a class called many-to-many or something, something like that that just took identifiers for students and identifiers for classes and made a little table that showed their relationship and not try to model it in terms of pointers. Well, wow, now we're off on in the weeds of like object-oriented versus functional. But that's an example of the kind of thing to come back to the topic that's a big leap. If you're not used to functional programming, why would I use this abstraction? Why would I use map and reduce instead of a for loop? Well, why would you use a new class that represents that relationship instead of just pointing to each other and maintaining those pointers correctly? I think it's a cleaner abstraction to just put them in their own class. And so with some of these teaching things and kind of talking about bringing some of these ideas of functional programming to people who might not be exposed to them, might have a pure procedural background or more OO background whether it's procedural OO or the stronger OO that was preached originally when the term was defined. But you mentioned you were doing pairing as well with people and remote pairing on top of that. So you've got to be able to pick up and bring these ideas to others and help at least enlighten them that there are other ways of doing it. And so how do you do that without coming across as the person who smugly sits in their tower preaching functional programming or the smugless weenie or whatever it is that says, oh, you're just being a jerk because you think your way is better than mine. And how do you just kind of educate but inform without saying, look, there's many ways to do this. In this case, this way may bias some other trade-offs. This other way may bias these trade-offs. And how do you kind of bring those ideas to people who may be exposed and may not even get it the first time? especially if you're doing this with your teammates when you're having to pair and you notice that they're struggling. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to that. Um, The first thing I want to say is I try not to sell functional programming in my courses. 
functional programming or closure. But that means something specific because there's a lot of levels of my like selling and marketing stuff. But in the course, I assume you want to learn the thing, like that you are motivated and that you want to learn it. You, you paid money for this. Let's just get started. And the same goes for like the marketing copy. If I'm teaching Core Async, I'm not really selling you on Core Async. I'm selling you on what you can do with it and how I can teach you that. But then I do have a lot of articles that will talk about the benefits of Core Async, right? So those are sort of the first, in marketing, they call it like the first touch. Like the first time I have an effect on you, maybe you just saw one of my blog posts about Core Async and you're intrigued. And then the next time you are kind of like, well, I think I might want to learn this thing. And so then you read the sales copy and it tells you about how this is going to teach it to you. And then when you're finally in the course, you get to learn it. So that's one thing from like my business side. When there's people that are like kind of curious and I'm pairing with them, I don't have a good answer for like how not to come off as a weenie, as a, a functional weenie. I think the thing that I do, which I don't know if it's that great, is I like to make pairing like separate out the two roles of pairing one person is driving the other person is navigating and the driver is determining the style and the approach to the problem and the navigator is only there to help so if you're pairing with me and i'm driving i'll take input from my navigator and everything but in the end i'm the one deciding if this should be a for loop or a filter or whatever and the same goes the other way. If the person likes for loops better, then that's what they get. I'm not going to try to discuss style and stuff in a pairing session. But there was something that I heard in the question that maybe wasn't directly there. And that there are people who want to learn functional programming. So that's not a question. They want to learn it, but they just don't know where to start. I've had a lot of people email me and they they, they'll say stuff like, how do I get a functional mindset? You know, I've been learning object-oriented programming for years. I'm a good programmer, but I just can't figure out where to begin with, to get a functional mindset. And I think that it took me a while to figure out what to say to them. I mean, first of all, it's just a stranger out of the blue asking me a question. I don't know what their level is. I don't know what their previous experience is. It's hard to just say, this is what you do. But after pairing with people, it goes back to this, like you can't underestimate your audience's level. I was assuming that they knew a lot more about functional programming than they did. And they really just needed the basics. They just needed to focus on doing stuff immutably. So avoid mutation, minimize mutation. They needed to think about using the three main functional tools, the map, the filter, the reduce, and really knowing when to use them and like what you could do with each one. Even as simple as like, what is the return type of map, right? And they can't answer. And I'm like, well, you know, you're asking me about functional mindset. You need to just learn these things. These are the basic tools. And of course, you know, I say it like 
I was surprised. That's why I said it that way. But then I, I realized, oh yeah, there's nothing out there that teaches this. There's nothing, even you know, the the classics of functional programming. They don't break it down into, look, start with these, use them for three months, and then come back and see what you think about them, and whether you want to use for loops anymore. Right? There's just no one out there drilling home the basics of functional programming. And so I kind of think that that's my thing for the moment is making sure that these basics are being driven home just through repetition and different examples and trying to get people to develop the habit to whenever they face a problem and they're stuck, just think, wait, can I use a map? Can I use a filter? Can I use a reduce? Because if I was interviewing someone for a job, and they said that they were a functional programmer, but then they didn't know map, filter, and reduce, I would seriously doubt that they were telling the truth. It's the kind of thing that is so fundamental if you can't use them. It's similar to like if you don't know how to make your own class in an object-oriented language, then, you know, really, that's basically what you do. And map, filter, and reduce are that basic they're that fundamental that you need to know them. And also, it's way easier to forgive someone who like maybe rewrote a function in core that in, in the standard library that they just didn't know existed and they rewrote it. I mean, I've done that a, a lot of times. But look, they rewrote it as a reduce. Oh, that's fine. They know what they're doing. They just didn't realize that this function already existed. So really, if you the audience, if you're thinking, how do I train the functional mindset? How do I change from object-oriented to functional? Just start asking, can I use a map here? Can I use a filter here? Can I use the reduce? Other things will fall into place. Things like reducing the amount of mutation, trying to use higher order functions, reducing the number of global variables, that kind of thing. Just those things will fall into place once you've got the foundation of I mean, it's basically like, these are the tools that'll get you through the jungle, you know? You're going to take a hike, and I say, oh, it's just on the other side of that jungle, and you don't know where to begin because you need a machete. Okay, here's a machete. You can chop through vegetation, and here's a canteen so you have some water. You know, it's just these basic things. Just once you're loaded up, you can make it to the other side. And these three tools are what are going to get you there. So that sounds like good advice for anybody who's just even familiar with functional programming and has those concepts, but as to what to focus on for helping their coworkers or other people that they are involved with in the community of just exposing those ideas and saying, look, you've seen the for loop, let's show this in a filter and show that pattern and say, can we understand what the filter is at a basic level? Can we understand what the map is at the basic level? And can we understand what the reduce is at the basic level, be it in Java, JavaScript, C Sharp, Ruby, or whatever else language that is supporting the ability to iterate over a collection and have some kind of higher order function that can be called or something that can be invoked, whether it's a callable in the pre-Lambda Java class where you have some sort of class that just says, I call this with a value and get a value back. But just be able to demonstrate those differences and say, we're not going to cover anything else, but these three fundamentals and just kind of show you how that changes some of your thinking 
Yeah. So if you are working at an object-oriented place, chances are you do refactoring and you have design patterns. And both of those things are great hooks for adding new things, right? So one thing that you might notice is like, hey, look, this class has some duplication. There's three for loops in here that look almost exactly the same. And they're different enough that they were written differently. It's not like the same method three times, but they only differ by the body. So you could say, wait, this body could be a lambda, right? It could be a proc or a, you know, whatever it's called in your language. And so why don't we try to get rid of this duplication? So just try to phrase it in terms that the person you're talking to is going to understand and be enthusiastic about. You know, you could call a tree walk a visitor pattern, right? So there's a lot of similarity there. And if, if someone is already involved in refactoring or involved in design patterns, look for ways to, I don't want to say sneak in, but just use your functional knowledge, but in a way that they can understand, you know, in the, in the terms that they understand. And I guess some of that is, as you describe that, I think the term comes up in my head of kind of a teachable moment of, look, we found this, there's a code review going on, or someone else has this problem and like, God, I got to change these four or five for loops now because of the way it's structured, we need to go update this, that I guess it's to look for those teachable moments, whether or not they're refactorings or new code that needs to be done and kind of just expose some of those basic ideas of the fundamentals of what if we were be able to pass a function or method to this for loop and how would that change and where does that become? Right. And this is actually giving me a, a great idea for a lesson to put in the online mentoring. A lot of places will have style guides and metrics, right? So, oh, we want to reduce the number of lines of code or we want to increase the code coverage or something. Hook it into one of those things. So say, look, if I do this refactoring, basically converting all these for loops into this new method I've created called filter, look how many lines of code are removed or look how many, how much more coverage we get because I've tested my filter method and now it's only one line to call, whereas before maybe you weren't calling everything. Like I think it's possible to bring them in without a total paradigm shift in, in your company. And just one more thing I could see would be, as far as the metrics, is the cyclomatic complexity because you're now removing a lot of these conditionals out. And so the branches through your code in that place that you've introduced the filter is now just a straight one path through the system instead of a whole bunch of paths because you've got the if checks buried in there as well. Right. Whereas the conditional checks are now in the logic of that lambda or that proc that you're passing to somewhere. Right. You might have had a nested for loop or something. And now it could be that you've pulled that into a like a data transformation chain and everything is, is simple again. It's it's two separate things happening one after the other instead of two things happening sort of intertwined with each other. So bringing this back around to your online mentoring and everything, is your online mentoring, you're focused in closure. Are you at this point of the online mentoring? Is this something that's more general to functional programming, but using closure as that tool? Or is it more towards the 
here's closure side, or is it somewhere in between that's kind of that balance of we're using closure, so I'm going to show you closure stuff, but I'm also showing you some of these more fundamental stuff. So even if you're not quite interested in closure, but you're interested in functional programming, that these are still applicable to you in general. And closure is just the tool that we're using to demonstrate some of this stuff. That's a good question. To be honest, it's still very closure centric. So I've got the domain name purelyfunctional.tv. I would like to have any number of functional languages in there in the program and make it sort of a interchange between different functional languages, right? So you'd have one price and you would get to learn everything. But at the moment, I, I just can't do that. I don't know that many languages and even closure right now is enough for me. But one day, uh, I would like to have other people in, in there that are, are experts in their languages and, and we could teach more fundamental concepts. So that's not to say I'm not teaching fundamental concepts, but they are focused on closure. And there is still a lot of stuff that's just about closure libraries. I've got a course in there right now that's Ohm. And a lot of people have been asking for Ohm Next. You know, people say, oh, you taught Ohm so well. Can you teach Ohm Next? Or when are you going to teach Ohm Next? I, I've been following the tutorial and I, I just want you to teach it. That's not going to be applicable to a Haskell person or an Erlang person, but I'd love to have it all, right? That would be great one day. And that's part of the reason I was asking was you mentioned at the top of the show that on your future roadmap at some point, you'd love to have a broader range of functional programming topics and languages and whatnot as far as the general ecosystem goes. So I didn't know when you're starting wanted to make sure that people listening knew kind of could understand where you were focusing. But it sounds good because there is a lot of stuff that even the ideas in Ohm and React are applicable probably across multiple languages. So I'm just wanting to figure out where that baseline was drawn for where you are now and where you're looking to be in the relatively near term to the longer term. Sure. That is a, a good question. I am trying my best to basically make enough to make it my full-time income. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting closer. I'm closer than I've ever been. And once it's at that point, I'll be able to dedicate a lot more time to it and hopefully use that, that extra time to find other people and, and get them up and, and running with more material for different languages. That said, if you out there listening, if you like this kind of work of teaching and you know a functional language that is not closure, then you should, uh, you should get in touch. I'm creating a page, like literally as we speak. It'll be at lispcast.com slash geekery. It'll have notes for some of the stuff we talked about but it'll also have a form to submit like a little survey to ask you what language you know and if you have any teaching experience. Teaching experience is not necessary, but something that you can show that, you know, you've been involved in trying to explain things, you know, a blog, conference talks, that kind of thing. I just like to see your style. Get in touch. It's not going to be tomorrow, but it'll be soon that I, I want to start expanding. So 
yeah, please, please sign up. So we're getting close to our time, but I want to make sure I give you time to bring up any other topics that we didn't get a chance to cover or that you thought we didn't actually dig in deep enough. So is there anything that you think we need to dive a little deeper on or that you want to make mention to before we start wrapping up the episode? I do want to say that I think that this is a really great podcast. I know I'm kind of like brown nosing now, but I really enjoy every episode. I like the variety of guests that you bring on, people I've heard of, people I haven't heard of. It's really expanding my perception of of functional programming. And I really like the clarity and depth of the questions that you ask. Well, thank you. That means a lot because I've been following your stuff, as I mentioned in 18, for a good while from early on and getting into closure and the clarity that you've brought to it, which is one of the reasons I want to get you back on and follow up and see how your stuff has evolved. So that means a lot coming from you as well. Cool. Thank you. Okay. So something that I thought of that would be a a good topic is I've been teaching for a while and just have some tips to teach. One tip that I've mentioned before is, and, and another reason I brought this up is because you mentioned that you took one of my tips and started blogging about stuff in the core library of Erlang. And I think that's that's awesome. I, I've been following that. Another thing is to answer people's actual questions. So I'll often go to Stack Overflow or Reddit or someplace where people are just talking and asking for help or IRC or whatever. And someone will have a question So I just write a blog post answering the question. And so this is like my own introspection. Like it's really easy to lose patience because I think that's what happens in IRC, why some people have like a bad experience when they ask a a beginner question. People are like, oh, you shouldn't do it that way. You should do it like this. It's easier in a blog post, right? Just don't answer right away. Start writing it out where they can't see it and flesh it out and all those things where you're like, oh, but you don't understand this thing. Like, oh, great, that's great. That's another paragraph that you can talk about. And it's therapeutic. It's helpful for the community. It's helpful for yourself building an audience and getting credibility and reputation. And just answer people's actual questions because those are the, the stumbling blocks that people are having with the language. It's so hard to just come up with a topic that's like, a genius thing that like everyone's going to want to read. But these things are real. People are really having a problem with them. And so what do you do with that topic? Well, you break it down. You find the things that like you might have some term that you're using. Like, wait, what does that even mean? You got to break it down, break it down further. Relate it to something in the real world that everyone has experience with. You don't know this person on IRC, but you know that they for instance, have been in a building, right? I mean, it's like universal. And so if you can relate it to being in a building, boom, you've got their understanding. So I used the example before of macaroni art. I don't know how many people have done macaroni art, but it's pretty universal. It's gluing pieces of dried macaroni onto a piece of paper and calling it art. And that kind of thing, it's very physical, 
People have done that before. They've done some kind of crafty art gluing project and it just instantly gets people. So just dig deep, dig really deep, like get out of the computer land and into a world where everybody has shared experience. The last thing is make it practical. So even when you have some like abstract concept, give a real example. I kind of made this mistake before and I corrected myself. I don't remember what I was saying, but I was talking about something just abstractly. And then I realized, no, I have to give an actual filter example, right? So I gave, was it filter or was it reduced? I don't remember, but give a real example. Don't speak abstractly. That's such a common thing to want to just talk about the abstract. Because in the abstract, you're always right. But make it a real example. Like use actual functions and values and, and show what it's going to do. So those are my tips for teaching. That's basically all I do. I just do it a lot. And I throw out stuff that doesn't really work with those principles. And those are all good just to be reminded of. I think I would guess that everybody's heard those tips at least once in their life for trying to explain stuff. But it's good to be have that reinforced and just be reminded of those things because when you're in the moment trying to get something out because you're just trying to get something cranked out in the same way that we can try and crank out code is we can lose sight of the bigger picture. So it's helpful to have those tips just reinforced until they actually become permanently ingrained. For sure. I experience that crank out thing all the time, right? Where I'm like, oh, these things I'm writing are just so boring and dry and abstract. And if I just spend 20 more minutes thinking about making it real world, using examples from the real world, breaking it down, taking all the jargon out. And I do that, like I get, first of all, it becomes way easier to write. It's way easier to write about macaroni art than it is to write about an abstract concept like reduce. So it flows better. It's easier to write. I get done faster and I get like a hundred times more people reading it right? So like I'm helping more people and people are interested in it. I think that it's worth every minute you put into doing those things. And you used a given word in there a number of times. And that's, I think, something else that we forget is that we're actually writing for people. We're not writing this just to write stuff. Ideally, we're writing this for other people to be able to consume and learn and get value from. For sure. And so keeping in mind that we actually are talking to people and not just writing stuff on a computer screen seems like another subtle thing that you've mentioned without explicitly calling out, but is useful as well. Right, right. It's not, so I think, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. Like I have this idea that if I just say only correct stuff, I will sound smart and people will trust me and they will learn from that. And it's just not the right focus. It's not about me sounding smart. That's just not what I should be thinking about. I should be thinking about the other person. The other person does not care so much about the minutia of the details of what I'm talking about. So like, you know, if I could say, oh, well, a reduction is like a left fold, like they don't care about that. Not in the moment, right? They can learn that later, but they want to understand it. That doesn't mean anything to them to say it's a left fold and not a right fold. And so thinking about like, what do they need to get this in their head? 
right? What is something that they've done that they can say, I already know how to do that. I just need to practice it a few times so that it becomes a tool I use in my programming. That's what you want. Yeah, so easy to just focus on sounding right. And that's what I was trying to get at when I was saying, you know, speaking abstractly, it's, it's easier to be right because you're not talking about anything real in the, in the real world. It's all, you know, mental constructs and stuff. You're more likely to be right, and so you're not going to make a mistake, and, and so then you sound smarter. But that's really not the goal. You should be invisible. You should make the, the material and the transfer of it to another person should be the focus. So those all sound good. So we've covered a lot. Is there anything you want to plug that you didn't get to mention a plug or call out specifically? Uh, well, lispcast.com slash geekery will have a link to purelyfunctional.tv in the mentoring course. It's also at purelyfunctional.tv slash mentoring if you want to go straight there. Get on the mailing list. There'll be links to that. And sign up if you're interested in learning closure. So where can people find you specifically online? You mentioned Lispcast. You mentioned the Purely Functional TV. Where can people find what's going on more around you and your updates outside of those two? The best way is to email me, eric at lispcast.com. I do have a Twitter, but I don't use it very much. I'm at Eric Normand. But all of that is linked to from my website. Okay, and I'll get all those added to the show notes as well. Cool, thanks. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Eric, taking your time to join me today. I know we had some scheduling problems that were on my end, but thank you for being flexible and getting this episode recorded with me. You're welcome. This is a total pleasure. Pleasure talking with you again. And we'll have to get you back on in the future at some point again to come back and just keep up to date with what's going on and your progress of helping to bring some of these ideas just to the general audience. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.